Hey everybody, Alice here with another episode of Poetry Says. I'm recording this in a little slice of time between Zoom meetings. And I mention that because this week's episode is going to be quite a bit about work. Work and poetry, work versus poetry. I have a sister who's 14 years my senior and I look up to her very much and her one piece of advice to me ever in her life was this. She said, work sucks, do a PhD. And when she said this to me, I would have been maybe 14 years old or something. And I thought, oh God, that sounds terrible. You know, I've got this sister who seems to live this wonderful life in this incredibly glamorous city up in Sydney. And, but she, she doesn't like her job and that seems terrible. Maybe I should do a PhD. I have it on good authority that doing a PhD also sucks in a particular way. I don't really have any friends who've, who've done PhDs who haven't like just gotten to the last year and just been totally crushed by it. Um, that seems to be a, a very common theme. So, but I think, I think my sister's point still stands. I think, uh, there are elements of having to front up for a job every day and bring your, the little shreds of, you know, your best self that you've got to offer to the world that day, giving them to work instead of a creative project or a relationship. And I think that if you are writing poetry in Australia today, it's pretty likely that you're doing it in little slices of time in the same way that I'm recording this intro here today. Uh, I read the work of poets who were writing in Australia in the late 60s and early 70s with a kind of bitterness because I have this narrative that, um, and whether this is true or not, I don't actually know, but I have this narrative that at that time when they were writing, those poets were able to live on the doll and that's it they were able to pay rent and buy food and buy drinks and work almost not at all and spend huge chunks of time reading and writing and just generally chilling out whether this is true or not I think it was you know maybe it was true for some poets but probably very few in reality but whether that was actually true or not at that time I know that amongst the poets that I uh, have relationships with today that they are working. They're working at unis, they're working as teachers, they are copywriters like myself or they do something entirely different but they are not devoting their life to reading and writing as the primary activity. It's, it's not even the tertiary activity, it's like 10 20th on the list i i think that is safe to say i i can't think of anyone right now off the top of my head who's like oh no i'm a full-time poet um i mean maybe if they're saying that uh what they mean is i'm a full-time academic i don't know (laughs) but yeah over the last 18 months um many of the poets i know and others as well have lost some or all of their work Um, and that is in its own way incredibly challenging and doesn't leave room necessarily for creativity to happen on the side or instead of working. Um, 
And then there are many others who have found themselves in this strange situation where as everything normal, quote unquote, around them collapses, they've found out that knowledge work just won't die. Email lives on. Meetings live on. People get more insane, but they have to continue to work. And I would count myself amongst this population of people who are just fronting up to meetings and responding to emails and filling out the, uh, the briefs and, and doing what we have been asked to do as if everything's normal. This situation came to a ridiculous pinnacle last week here in Melbourne on Wednesday. We had, I think, something in the order of 4,000 tradies protesting the fact that they were unable to work. Uh, they were on the Westgate Bridge singing Daryl Braithwaite's Horses. And at about 9.15 a.m., we also had an earthquake, a 5.8 earthquake. And that's probably nothing if you live in San Francisco or Tokyo. But fuck, it was terrifying. Like, it was really, really scary. I was here in this office where I'm recording, and I was really lucky that, that somebody else was also here. And we just looked at each other like, what? the actual fuck like what is going on what is this day this week this year this is totally mental and um she and I did sort of a, a blocky and and came back and sort of did some breathing <laughs> and then I came back and I sat down at my desk and I was like well I better get ready for my next meeting I gave myself like I don't know, 20 minutes or something before I was like, I need to be working again. I need to be a functional worker again now. That's nuts. That's, that's, and you know, I know that like people live in places where earthquakes happen all the time and it's not that unsettling, but um, I was not really ready to go back to work. So anyway, getting back to, to my point here as relates to poetry, I think if one function of the poem is to help us understand the world, I think for me some of the poems that have changed my understanding of the world most have been poems about work. Poetry's really opened up my understanding of what work is and what, asks, what work asks of us. And there is a strong strain of dealing with work and labor and capital amongst the poets that I know and love here in Melbourne. Just as an example of this, uh, I, I, I definitely can't call it a school, but like this, um, this strain of Australian poetry, I grabbed just three books off my shelf that I knew kind of dealt with this. The first one is Melinda Bufton's new book, Moxie, which came out uh, from Vagabond not, not that long ago, yet to be launched. She's still trying to launch it, and I really want to go to that party. Um, the whole book is about work, and Melinda's hilarious anyway, but when she gets going about work, it's... It's pretty devastating. This is a poem from Moxie called The Winner's Circle. 
We talk about a good one. We say, you should talk to M. she's a good one. Sometimes, she's really good. Something I never learned in continuing professional development was the way those people are a bit mad in their intensity. Nobody ever says addicted to work and means it. Flying one eyebrow towards the delivery, going hard in the consultation phase, or moving between buildings with a sense of dire joy and the drama of the uncontained will. This is hysteria, modern age. I have driven that carriage, sack of blood pumping my heart towards ambition's worst hits. She's just like you. She's a good one. Far out. <laughs> so fun. Ah, oh, that was awesome. Thank you, Melinda. Thanks for existing. Um, Petra White is another writer who has dealt with work pretty directly in her writing. And I think hers were some of the first poems I came up against that I thought, oh, you can write about this stuff. Like when I first started trying to build a relationship with reading and writing poetry, I was working in an office job. And my deal with myself was, if you can just do 10 minutes of reading or writing before you have to start working, then that's all you need to do. That was my goal for myself, for 10 minutes. And some days I didn't even do that. But reading uh, Petra's work helped me to realize like I could actually write about what I was experiencing each day. It didn't need to be that I was writing, um, you know, beautiful love poems or elegies. I could just write about the office if I wanted to. Um, so this is a poem from A Hunger, uh, which came out quite a few years back now. And very different to what Petra's written more recently, but I still really, really love this. This is part of a, um, a long poem called The Sound of Work. This is part three. The familiar fears are there to greet us morning and evening. Our nameless dread cannot go unnamed for long, but needs a suitor, a human form, a mirror, a Bible and scepter to lounge with by our side, watching as we dress. To carry self as one carries a fear, across water or sand, who dares hope for goodness or safety? That ever oncoming, the sack, destitution, dream job or a lifetime left of working just like this. And what's wrong with this? At the interviews flint in my ear, a peculiar pin of light cracks up. The questions compel me, into sentences, belief in what I do, bright semblance, gathering the work into a bubble of dream. I will pull the plugs out of my soul and do this job better, that I might be observed to do it better and invited to do it better, somewhere better and be better. Yikes, the last stanza is just really devastating. Um, The questions compel me into sentences. <laughs> yeah, that's what a job interview is, isn't it? You're just like, oh God, I'm saying words and I don't know what they mean, but I'm saying them. Uh, the last example I have here is um, from Elena Gomez. Elena's most recent book is a beautiful extension of what she... Actually, you know what? I'm going to have to pause here because I've run out of 
time and I've got to jump into my Zoom meeting so I'm going to be back in a second. Hello again. Don't you love it when your podcaster changes location mid-intro and all your levels are different and now you have to play with your volume. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, so what happened there was that meeting turned into more work and then my day went in a completely different direction and now it's four hours later and I'm in a different spot. But I'm leaving this all in because I feel like it's all germane. Um, I was talking about Eleanor, Eleanor Gomez. So Eleanor wrote the book Body of Work a couple of years ago and her follow-up is this incredible beautiful looking book from Puncher and Watman called Admit the Joyous Passion of Revolt and it's kind of like it's almost like one long poem but I think but I think there's there's probably three to four big sections in it and I don't know that I fully got my head around it but it definitely continues this theme of investigating uh, just what it is to be a worker um, a worker who cares about words a worker who doesn't necessarily want to be a worker all the time. So this is just a little section from it. As I said, it's kind of a long poem broken up into sections. After a boss leaked the surplus labor all over your standing desk, we divided the chips from my snack pockets. I was too girly and it showed. My muslin dress helped, but I wanted it. You were too hesitant and the possum who lived inside the roof could tell we were too afraid to climb. And then there is barbarism and savagery and barbarism, or the barbarity of marriage pursuant to the centuries. She hurts. Mine is a special kind of revolt. So those three examples that I just picked off my shelf are certainly not representative of anything necessarily except to say that I feel like this investigation of work as an artist and work as a person is something that at least the writers that I know and love are pretty interested in. And I know that um, there are there will be heaps of other examples that I am completely blanking on here. So again, not a representative sample, but I feel as if the spoken or unspoken thread running through all this writing is essentially, I wish I had more time to sit down and write poems. I don't know if those writers would agree with that, but that is, that's what I take from it, at least. Not in a, a sort of entitled, oh, it's so unfair that I have to go to work and make money, more in a just, just a questioning way. You know, what, why is it that this work has to happen in these little slices of time? All of which brings me to this week's Poetry Month interviewee, Dan Hogan. So I got to speak to Dan again a little bit over a month ago, like all these interviewees. And Dan is a self-described working class writer and a public school teacher from New South Wales. So Dan's poetry and essays have won the Overland Judith Wright Poetry Prize and the Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship. And they also run Subbed In, which is a DIY publisher. And we talk a bit about what that's like to run Subbed In and what it's, uh, 
and the good things about being on the other end of a submissions email address. I will say I went into this interview with not a little bit of creative jealousy. Did you just write something? I've certainly gone for a few times, uh, as is a bunch of stuff at the Wheeler Center. And also, I really feel like Dan is doing what I want to do, but just better. Um, yeah, so <laughs> that's that's what that is. Uh, I said I was going to be more honest, so there you go. Um, but look, Dan was just the loveliest, and it was great to talk to them. And so we talk about, yeah, what it is to be a working class poet, quote unquote, and also writing up against what they describe as multiple overlapping crises. So I really hope you enjoy that. Thank you very much for putting up with the level change. And I hope that your week is a good one. So where I've been starting a lot of conversations with poets that I've spoken to over the last year is what space does poetry occupy in your life right now and has that changed over the last year as everything around us has changed so much uh, that's a that's a that's a great question and um, sort of a provocation of reflection I guess in in a way because the last year has been so hectic for, for for everyone in their own way, of course, and in their own community's way. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because I feel like in in all that hecticness of the last the last twelve to eighteen months through the pandemic and and all the strife that has invoked, uh, sort of just been personally just been like careening through it um, every in every which way, um, whether that's professionally, personally, recreationally, where where you can get it, etc. Yeah, I like that question because I haven't probably thought too succinctly or sharply about how that has affected um, my relationship to poetry as a reader and as a writer uh, during that time I still feel like I'm on that sort of trajectory of careening through it all but having said that I mean I think my uptake of poetry has probably increased or has definitely increased in that time simply because I've had the time more time to to read due to bouts of unemployment which is yeah which is a, a, a curse and a blessing when I think of it in that in that way but drilling down from that too in my own uh, practice as a as a as a writer slash poet as well I think I've been increasingly seeking out poetic works that speak to I guess some of the multiple and overlapping crises that you know are unraveling in the world right now and also in my own personal life not to sound so so dramatic um yeah and, and that and that has led that's been that's as much as it's been like you know a careening through it or it has been a careening of discovery in in that way as well and I think I think one thing I've been doing as well now that I think of it too is reading poetry in relation to other types of texts that aren't that aren't poetry which is not something that I was probably um, doing or not doing with such intention before the pandemic struck Careening is absolutely the word, isn't it? Just yeah, <laughs> bouncing from one crisis to the next. So <laughs> you mentioned work in there. You mentioned a period of unemployment. And I wanted to ask you about your description of yourself as a working class poet. Back in 2018, you published a piece called 
I forced a bot to read over a thousand listicles detailing the routines of successful writers and then asked it to write a listicle of its own. Here are the first 26 and it's a wildly hilarious piece, which I really, really (laughs) loved. Working class poet with that word in mind, what are some of the myths that you've encountered if you introduce yourself as a poet and what are the actual realities of working as a poet? It's a, that's a great question. It's something I've sort of um, been thinking more about really only recently and, and again through the, the, the period that we've just described with the pandemic and, and, and everything. It's interesting because I feel like poetry in a very broad sweeping sense exists in a bourgeois world um, but it isn't necessarily a bourgeois form of artistry um, and I, and where where I find it really um, what's the what's the word for it there's this sort of like uh, interesting tension tensions the word where I come from a working class community where if I say I'm a poet it's sort of just like it's it's, it's sort of scoffed at but not not in a nasty way just in a like a Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. We're we're all we're all poets. That's cool. You know, the gravity around it's different in a, a working class community compared to, I guess, a more bourgeois community or institutions. Especially because, like, I grew up in a regional area of a of of the colony, and then when I moved to the sit to the city in Sydney and got more involved with poetry stuff, there, there's this really different tension. Like, being a poet per se means a completely different thing. It's a funny one to talk about, but but when I call myself a writer, my working class family, friends, comrades see that as more legitimate, whereas poet is seen as more like a hobby sort of thing. Whereas when I'm being in more sort of middle, upper class bourgeois circles or however you want to term it, it's acceptable. It's it's seen as a as a vocation. I mean, I wonder if it's as simple as writers make money, poets almost certainly don't. Yeah, like I think it's where I come from. It's like even writing in 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 a broader sense, if we were to call writing prose and poetry, poetry um, is seen as broadly speaking as a hobby and not as a as a trade. But but if we were to zoom out a bit more, I think it would say that writing prose is 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 the trade and poetry is the hobby. A follow up question about economics and money and work. And landlords, uh, landlords come up a little <laughs> bit in your poems. Your poem "No Alarms," which won the 2020 Judith Wright Poetry Prize, includes the line, "Somewhere a landlord is kissing another landlord." And then your piece that became a finalist in the uh, Queensland Poetry Festival Film and Poetry Challenge is called "Everything Will Be Okay for Your Landlord." I feel like, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I feel like throughout Australian poetry at the moment, there's this really important, maybe writing in general, there's a really important tracking of the economic realities of being a working artist in Australia. Does that, does that resonate for you? I, I, like how, I like how you put that. There is this, this, this tracking of what the material reality of what it is to be a working artist of, of, any, of any description uh, in Australia at the current time and, and in, even in recent times pre-pandemic as well the writing that you that you mentioned there and um, I think in a broader sense too there is a um, I guess a, a sort of generalized conversation or preoccupation with class which I think is really important because to be able to practice as an artist you, you're tethered to your material conditions in that sense 
in what you can produce, how you can produce it, how you can get better at something, I guess, access the resources you need to develop as an artist as well. I think there's also an interesting conversation about, I guess, ownership of sorts, which can be, you know, viewed from multiple standpoints. So I think when I'm, when I'm talking about landlords and stuff in my work, it's, it's often through the image of, you know, the, the landlord who owns the, the rental that, that you live in. But, it, but it's, um, I'm hopeful, I sort of hope. And I, and I think that I've seen this in, in other contemporary works as well. You know, who, who owns the means of art in the, in the bigger sense, um, which sort of speaks back to what you, you mentioned before, the material condition of being a working artist in Australia is every, everyone else has another job or multiple jobs or freelancing or, 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 or whatever. Um, it's it's extreme, extremely rare that someone is oh my, you know my job is is poet I do poetry and poetry related activities there's always a question of well okay well who owns the the infrastructure of all this you know like not that I think there's some big um, poetry mogul at the top you know siphoning the value of all our poetic labor I think the arts especially literature and poetry even within that has been progressively cut down over the over the years due to funding constraints among other things as well. Everything you're talking about too just reminds me of Fiona Wright, who's another Sydney writer, and she writes really beautifully about the simplest factor that underpins so much, and that's why I picked up on this word landlord in your work. Leases in Australia are six months or a year. It's really hard to plan with a six-month or a year lifespan, particularly when you're an artist that maybe needs a bit more time to gather materials, gather ideas, unpack an idea, um, collaborate with others. If you're constantly moving, shifting housemates, things like that. Yeah, I just, I feel like, again, it's a very simple factor, but I think it's also a huge and important one. And that's just why I really appreciated that you focus specifically on the idea of the landlord. I kind of have the opposite scenario. I don't know if it's opposite, but I have a, in my own life, I kind of gave up 10 years of writing to make money um, mm. so I would have stable housing conditions. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. constantly, yeah. I constantly yeah. feel like I'm five years behind everyone else, you know, for that reason. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, 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 I think that's um, a story not dissimilar to, to many people, um, especially practicing writers of, of, of many, many forms and, and genres is that, um, especially being a working class writer, you do have to make that choice sometimes where you're doing your art in between work and recovering from work, but then it can become so, so hectic and full on that you need to make a choice between, yes, yeah, stable housing, at least for a while before you can start producing work again. Yeah, yeah. You've written really extensively about your work as a teacher and about the challenges that you've faced in that world throughout the pandemic I wonder if when you have been teaching whether your work as a teacher supports and informs your work as a writer or do those two roles compete in terms of taking time from one another or is it both yeah it's definitely it's actually definitely both um and it's it's sort of like over the the almost 10 years I've been teaching like so when I started teaching if I was to like put it in a in an image um you know my teaching world and my writing 
world. They were as far away apart as possible. And I thought I thought of them as like two parallel lines that shall never meet. But over that that decade, as I've sort of found my way in teaching and in my work as a teacher, but also in my work as a as a as a writer, those things have come to a point where they've intersected and they definitely inform each other now. And they probably have for a few a few years. I so I, I don't know, I haven't committed enough thought to as to why, but I really compartmentalized writing there, teaching over there. And it's only in more recent years that I've thought, you know, I'm spending most of my life at work or doing work for work at home instead of having them competing against each other. Like that's my life. That's what I should write about really. Yeah. It took me, it took me a long time to realize that it sounds so basic now to say it out loud. It's an interesting one. I think this is where maybe classism comes into it in, you know, the broader sense of the literary world where I sort of had to give something that approached the appearance of a right or whatever that is, which I think is a more bourgeois image because like I hadn't really read at that time a lot of work that wrestled with ideas of class or, or just work more generally. You are currently working on your first book of poetry. Is that still correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Awesome. What's that experience been like in terms of bringing a book together? Yeah, it's been really, it's been really interesting because I'm quite a, like my practice is quite chaotic it's been quite a good experience to to really properly sit down and be like okay when I pull this all together what does it what does it actually look like as a cohesive body of work that I could call a book or a manuscript it's been interesting to sort of like pull new work and old work together and and then go through like a process of I mean I guess rewriting a lot of stuff dismantling deconstructing a lot of like older poems and reconstituting them so they they fit uh, I guess more interestingly with the preoccupations of a manuscript as a whole rather than an individual poem yeah that process has been is, has been quite has been quite interesting I think the first book is always a bit of a high wire act between the old poems that you're quite attached to but maybe don't quite reflect where you're at anymore and then the new yeah, stuff that yeah, you're just yeah. more excited about and I find mm. this particular lines from older poems that I sort of I still I'm still convinced that like oh there's something in this that that poem itself is you know on the cutting room floor but I want to take that one line and you know extrapolate a new poem with new preoccupations and themes around it uh, and sometimes that that's been interesting, and sometimes that that works. It's sort of like producing something, something new from something old. And then other times, it's like I, I just have to let this go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you write every poem to get to the next poem, I believe. So they're all worth. Yeah, I like that. You're also the editor of Subdin, and I would love to know what really excites you when it lands in the Subdin inbox. I guess I'm first and foremost. A, a reader so like the thing that I'm most drawn to in a I guess a poetry manuscript that is essentially un, unpublished is yeah just, just enjoying the act of reading it I don't it's it's the old thing like I sort of I know it when I see it but I don't know how to describe what I'm seeing before I see it um like for example uh just this week I actually released Emily Crocker's new full-length book of poetry called In the Drink and the first time I read her manuscript, which was towards the start of 2021, I knew it was going to be good, but it just completely blew my socks off. And I sort of read it all in, in one sitting. For me personally, what draws me to a really great poetry manuscript 
is one that there's a sort of propulsion that runs all the way through it. And Emily's book does that really well. It doesn't appear as, you know, here's, you know, the poems I've been working on for the last three years thrown together. Here it is. I mean, I, I like poetry collections that are like that as well. There's sort of like a beautiful chaos in, in that construction as well. But I really love where you, you read the first poem and then that sort of propels you into the next one. And it's, and before you know it, you've got to the end of the, the book and they're all individual poems that could obviously stand alone. But you've, you've also entered the world of the, the poet and I guess the ideas and concepts, preoccupations that they're exploring through that expression. I am always aware when I interview people that there might be people listening who are just starting out writing poetry or even less than that, who might feel that poetry is a closed system that is not for them. And Mm, I'd really love to hear any message that you might have for people who are having those thoughts. Maybe they've got a few little secret poems in their notes file but they're not really sure whether they even count. Uh, what would you say to anyone listening who's in that position? The blessing and the curse of growing up sort of poor and working class and in a regional place is that, like, I, don't, I didn't get the memo as a kid that poetry is this very sort of, like, bourgeois, uh, sort of sort of world because um, you're surrounded by other working class people. So it's just like, yeah, poetry, yeah, poetry's fine. You like poetry? Yeah, cool, that's fine whatever. Um, what are you going to do for a, for a job? How are you going at school? Um, are you hungry? Uh, et cetera. It wasn't until like I you know, became an adult and started to approach a poetry more seriously that I was like, oh, hang on a sec. I can't access that part. But what I, and this is where the internet has been quite good. And, you know, if I was going to offer any kind of guidance or advice, it would be literally just to submit to places and sort of engage with editors and, and, and publishers and see what come, comes back and because it, it's such a solitary act and it's even more solitary if you're unsure or feel like it's not for you. So I think that the first step is sort of making that, that engagement and being, and being ready to be edited as well. I remember the first time I had a poem accepted, uh, which was in VoiceWorks magazine going back a long time ago. I was so excited to be, to be edited and I was having a back and forth with um, the, a poetry editor in Melbourne and I was in San Remo. And it was just like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Like I remember saying, I was quite young at the time, I was saying to my mom, like, oh, I'm editing a poem with someone in Melbourne. Can you believe this? Um, <laughs> it's going to be, you know, it's going to be published well. And I get paid for it. That experience in itself, like, was just so uh, empowering in a way. And, you know, there'd be, you know, months and years between having things, things published um, and rejected as well. I think that's an important experience. And there'll always be more of that than there will be, you know, having a work published. But I think, putting yourself out there uh, and just sort of going for it and see what comes back. And I guess the internet kind of makes that a little bit easier because putting yourself out there, you can do at your keyboard. It's not as nerve wracking as doing it. I don't know, face to face or turning up to an event and being like, Oh, Hey, I don't know any of you, but we have a common interest if, in case you didn't know. Um, yeah. Submit, submit, submit. That's what I would say. Uh, so good to talk to you. Would you like to close us out with a poem? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay, this poem's called Very Eyes. I saw what you did, kicking the purple heads off Agapanthus, telling me to suck eggs as if I couldn't hear. You're like a hundred diagrams stacked in the middle of a room with all the furniture pushed to the sides, ready for a wake. Personally, my arm's a sad rope. 
I don't have elbows in the traditional sense, although I am known to make bends to lift grocery bags, but don't hold it against me. I've always been nothing but a clump of clothes and cognition. I need to start lifting my feet higher when I walk. Five more minutes until the Century Long Careers Expo. Don't laugh. This is serious. It is claimed by who? The sky is where the bats go to do their levitations. Strike me down, sure. But remember, you're never far from a statue. Light travelling at the speed of sound. Sit back and unwind. Unsuck the shin pads from your legs. I would. Fall asleep beneath a glittering sheet of quinoa woven by spheres. This and everything on this page is the discount code you enter at, at your last checkout. Printer slash scanner slash storm clouds in the offing. Indensifiers should be a word, as in the thunderhead rapidly gains density before our very eyes. The hole in the massage table is where you find your face. I would. Eyes trained on the linoleum when the technicians clad in jumpsuits don welding masks and work Macca's burgers into your back. Don't think I don't know.